What's up, my friends? Welcome back to the Pilgrimage Podcast for the curious, creative, and contemplative soul. My name is Joshua Luke Smith, and we're about to dive into the fourth and what will be the final episode of this current series in the company of failures and fools. Yes, yes, yes. All right, before we go any further, I want to do a shout out to some of the members of the Pilgrimage Co who have signed up, who are receiving all these different expressions of this work that we do and also helping to sustain it. Shout out Anna, Heather, Ruth, Emily, Jacqueline, Graham, Paul, Julie. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful and I'm so encouraged to have you a part of this story and on this journey with me. If you haven't signed up yet, you can. Just go to pilgrimage.co. You'll receive access to the Pilgrimage Conversations podcast, which I love. I think is amazing. The guests that we've had on so far are John McMillan, uh, the storyteller and songwriter, and Carlos Rodriguez, who is a poet, prophet, humanitarian, just an incredible guy. And that's on there. You also get meditations and blogs and access to gatherings that we do. We had the Makers and Seekers gathering last month. This January, I'm hosting for the first time a workshop for communicators, which is all of us, called The World in Our Words. And if you sign up to the Pilgrimage Co., you get access to that. Um, it's included. If not, it's 40 quid. It's happening on the 30th of January. So I'd love to have you come along to that. Um, before we move on to the episode, let me give you a little taste of the conversation I had with Carlos Rodriguez because it was very special. And the things that I thought were dark, there's so much light because light overcomes the darkness. And so many of my experiences that were said to not be godly, I'm having them and then I'm finding God in them. And, and, and so much of what I thought was evil is actually brokenness that has place to heal. And so, I, again, to go back to it, I want to validate people's questions and anxieties and yet invite you to leave Jerusalem, try new things, meet with new people, ask those difficult questions. And I'm so glad you have a podcast like this one to make room for it, to make people be like, oh, wait, I'm not insane. I'm not that crazy. At least there's one British guy and one Puerto Rican guy talking about this. Yes. So you heard that correct. This is going to be the final episode of the series. It was going to be five episodes. I decided to make it full because the final two they're too interlocked and integrated with one another to separate them. So I've kept them together like some lyrical Siamese twins. And also, hey, it's Christmas coming up. So instead of giving you two episodes dropping over the weeks of the Christmas break, I thought I'd put them in one for you to listen to and digest. And if you're not celebrating Christmas, well, hey, here's something to listen to at the end of December. I'm, I'm so grateful for you all tracking with me during this this series that we've done over the last couple months it's been fun i've loved it i've also found it difficult uh for no other reason and i think what we've been talking about really gets down to the core of our being and and in in all honesty it gets down to the core of some of the most shameful and difficult parts of our being we've talked about everything from our origin story to self-sabotage getting in our own way we've talked about the, the need and the drive to hide ourselves in fear that in people's awareness of who we are and what we've done, 
will expose to be someone that no one really wants to be around and is incapable of loving and belonging. And just that little blurb, I mean, yeah, that's what we've talked about on this podcast, but we've also talked about the grace that connects us all, the grace that we're all invited to relate to and participate with. And we've been diving into these ancient Hebrew stories, Hebrew stories in the scriptures that for no other reason just help give us some shared perspective and some needed company in the depths of our own experiences. That's what's so incredible to me about the scriptures is that over thousands of years, these stories have been recorded, stories about humanity's progression and the way that humanity relates to God. They've been recorded and told over time, over centuries, over thousands of years. And here we are all this time later still telling them because in them we're still seeing ourselves reflected back and we're seeing something that helps us feel less isolated, less alone. Isn't it interesting in the modern world with all of our advances in so many different arenas, we can read stories that were recorded 4,000 years ago and realize, actually, we haven't moved on that much. We still struggle with shame. You know, we still wrestle with the feeling of being fully known. We still we still find it so easy to pull ourselves down and others with us. So that's that's really why I love these stories because as ancient as they are, they're, they're making sense of the world that I'm experiencing now. And if if for you to listen to a podcast that is beginning with talk of the Bible is a little off-putting because the Bible wasn't helpful for you in the way that it was used. It didn't simplify it, complicated things. It didn't liberate it felt like it only shackled. All I ask is that you stay with us, that you stay with us where we're going. Because I think where we're going is somewhere expansive and somewhere liberating and somewhere ultimately redemptive. The, the story that we're going to be looking at today in this pursuit of making sense of our failure and our foolishness is in a book called Samuel. It's the second book. It's Samuel 2, chapter 11. And this is, this is a harrowing story. And for, for anyone listening, I just, I, I want to kind of put a warning out there, a trigger warning, so to speak, that the story does include um, a passage about sexual abuse. Um, the Bible doesn't talk about it in that way, but we are going to talk about it in that way. And so if it would be unhelpful for you to hear that and to, um, yeah, be around that kind of story, then please, obviously, feel free stop the podcast and listen to something else. Or if you want, you can just skip it 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes forward. And um, it will all still make sense to you. I just wanted to let you know that we are going there. It's funny, so often with with biblical texts, they become so familiar that it's easy to gloss over some of the specific beauty and horror that's within them. And I think to fully get out of them what is possible to be gleaned we have to go a little slower and we have to really reflect upon the specifics of the passage and partly the reason I want to do that with this text is because King David the subject of the story is a man that we have come to revere and become so inspired by if you if you hear the the name David King David the phrase a man after God's heart is so often connected with it it was a phrase that adorned him 
It was a phrase that he is known by and, and in many ways defined by, a man after God's heart. He wrote most of the Psalms, the Hebrew poems that reflect a heart that was desperate for God and speak of exaltation and lament and self-exploration and they're beautiful and they're classic works and they're transcendent, they're, just, they're unbelievable. And yet the story that we're talking about today is real and included in, a, in, 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 his, in his journey. And the reason this story matters to me isn't because we can look at it in a way that clears his name so that we can still, you know, view his work and the rest of his life in such a manner that it doesn't include what happens here. It's not to vindicate him. It's actually to specifically explore the measure in which David failed and fell and acted in the most vile and violent kind of way. It's it's so that we can be less afraid of doing that with ourselves, less afraid of becoming specific in the manners in which we have fallen down, less afraid to look at a story beyond its moment of the pit, its moment of darkness and travesty. And we know this from watching movies and reading books. We know this from entanglement of our favorite characters and plot lines that there's so often a redemptive end to some of the most difficult and painful and um, troublesome situations but are we able to do that with ourselves are we able to place upon our own stories the expectation for liberation in the face of trial and our own failure and falling down so this is the story. It starts chapter 11 of the second book of Samuel. And it's a, it's a long story. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it for you. You can go back and read it if you want to do that. But there is a line at the beginning of the story that I, that I just need to read straight from the text. And so it goes like this. Give me a second. I'm just going to pull it up. You'd think I'd have it ready. All right. It goes like this. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story, but I just want to circle back to that first opening line. In the spring, when kings go out to war, David remained at home. Kings would go out to war in the spring for the obvious reason. The days were getting longer. The weather was better. The fighting conditions would have been more advantageous for their soldiers so the kings in a in an ancient world where on every king's mind it was conquest and let's be honest it still is spring was the time to move into the foreign territories and try and take more land and David was a king known for leading his men in battle not all kings would but David was one of those kings and so the writer makes the point of saying when kings go out to war when David would have, should have 
been going out to war, to battle. He remained at home. And then the next, the next sentence opens with the line, it happened late one afternoon. And, and obviously you lean in. What happened? Well, David is walking upon his rooftop and he sees a woman bathing. And he's attracted to her. He thinks she's beautiful. And he lusts for her. And the text tells us that he sent someone to go and get her. And he brought this woman who was called Bathsheba to David. And then it says he lay with her. And then she returned to her house. And she discovered that she was pregnant. Now, what we have here is nothing short than a man who's incredibly powerful and incredibly, incredibly privileged using that power and using that privilege to rape a woman. That's what this story is about. And I heard it growing up as a sort of adultery story at the beginning. It's not adultery. There's nothing in the text that implies a consensual uh, sexual relationship the text tells us that a king saw a woman bathing he was he was uh looking at her without her knowing that she he was looking at her and then he called for her with his privilege with his power he called for her to be brought to him and when the king calls you to be brought to him there is no way you can say no and so she goes with him and the text Interestingly, the text doesn't say they lay together. It says he lay with her. And in other Old Testament texts, it would say they lay together. It speaks, even in the text itself, it speaks of David taking something that he wants. And Bathsheba then finds out that she's pregnant. Which obviously puts David in a bit of a dilemma. What's the dilemma? He has conceived a child with a woman who was married. And not only is she married, but she's married to one of the soldiers in his army. A man called Uriah, a man, a good man, a righteous man, a valiant man. Now what David decides to do is create a plot to murder this man. It begins with sexual abuse and it moves on to murder. The way he does it, is knowing that there's a, there's a battle coming up, he arranges the army to lead this man Uriah into a very compromised situation in the battle where Uriah is going to be facing uh, soldiers that outnumber him and outskill him. And at that point in the battle, David's men are ordered to pull back from Uriah, rendering him helpless. And rendering him with an inevitable destiny of death, which is exactly what happens. And so a few verses into chapter 11, David has um, raped a woman and he's murdered her husband. That's who David is. That's what David has done. And he's conceived a child with Bathsheba. Now, the story gets even more interesting at the beginning verses of chapter 12. What happens in chapter 12 is a prophet called Nathan comes to David. 
He says, David, I want to tell you a story. There was a rich man. And this rich man had many flocks and herds. He had sheep and he had cattle. And in this land of the rich man, there was also a poor man. And the poor man had one lamb. And this lamb was the only possession he had. And he loved this lamb like a child. In fact, this man would let the lamb eat from his dish and drink from his cup. He cherished and cared for the lamb so dearly. And one day a traveler came and he approached the rich man and he asked if he could feast with him. But the rich man wasn't prepared to sacrifice to kill any of his own flock to feast with the traveler. So he called for the poor man's lamb to be slaughtered. The only lamb the poor man had. The only thing he treasured like a child in his life. The rich man had it slaughtered so that he could eat with this traveler. And David hears the story and he's enraged. He's so angry at the injustice of this tale. And he says this rich man is deserving of death. And this lamb must be paid back to the poor man four times over. And while David is in this fit of rage... Nathan responds, you are the rich man. I know what you've done. You are the rich man who's taken from the poor man the only thing he had, the only thing he loved. You are the rich man. And David hangs his head low and says, I have sinned before God. Have mercy on me. He's been caught. There's nothing he can do. There's nothing he can say. Nathan knows, not because he's observed it, but because he has a prophetic unction. He has a sense. And that's, that's the role of the prophet in society, to call out what is, to be a truth teller, to speak the truth in all circumstances. We often think of the prophet being someone who speaks about what's going to happen, but so often really the prophet is the person who speaks about what is happening and uses the word and confronts the issues that everybody else is trying to avoid for one reason or another, but most commonly for their own self-advantage. Nathan calls it out. There's nothing David can do. And the story continues. Nathan says, Look, you can be repentful, but it doesn't change the consequences of your sin. He says, the sword will never leave your house. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And you have invoked violence upon another household. You've killed Uriah. And now this child that you've conceived with Bathsheba won't live. And that's how it exactly played out. And so we have this story, which is so easy just to breeze past in a few verses. But for me... I've been reading it and meditating upon it and reflecting upon it for a number of reasons. One, to fully appreciate the horror of David's actions. You know, we live in a time where in the last few years it has come to light so um, evidently the injustice that women face in our world at the hands of men. Where men have used power and privilege and dominance and arrogance and ego against them verbally and physically and sexually and in every kind of way and it is abhorrent it is evil it is destructive it's a terrible terrible thing 
And I'm so glad that it has come more and more into the light for no other reason that we as men can take a longer, harder, more difficult look into the mirror of our own reflection and change our ways and call one another as brothers to a higher level of living out what it means to be a man. And this ancient story, it bangs upon that drum that for as long as we've been around, men have been abusing women and it must end and it can end. And why do I say that it can end with such foolish optimism? Because if we're capable of making decisions that bring such dishonor, then we are equally capable of making decisions that do the opposite and bring honor and worth and value to the women that we're around. Speaking to the men listening to this podcast and to myself, woe to us if we don't allow even a story as ancient as this and stories that are so present in our culture and in our time right now, stories that speak of the way men have abused and let down and hurt and traumatized women. Woe to us if we don't allow these stories to lead us into a state of self-examination to explore how we unwittingly or intentionally could have the same impact upon a woman. Woe to us if we don't allow ourselves to explore how we could better honor, love, appreciate, value, cherish, and become safe spaces for the women around us. This story is written in plain text. It couldn't be more obvious. And yet it's only been in the last year or so in my reading of it that I've realized what the text is saying. I used to, it used to have such soft edges around it. It would make it seem like David had done something that wasn't as horrifying as it was. David in 2 Samuel is recorded as a rapist and a murderer. That's who this man is. And yet... As I said at the beginning, we remember him as a man after God's heart. There was nothing that David could do for the rest of his life that would excuse what he had done. There was nothing that could vindicate him. What's done is done. And if he was alive today, he'd be locked away for the rest of his life. And I've sat in prison with men that are never coming out. I've sat with men that have done the most abhorrent things that are never going to be reconciled with friends or families in the way that they would wish and hope. But I've sat with men who are still human beings. They're still breathing air. They're still having breakfast. And somehow, of David's life, it's recorded that he was a man after God's heart. And you can, you can view that in one of two ways. One, you can view it in a way that avoids his actions, that avoids his behavior, that just kind of whitewashes it with all the wonderful things that he did and said and wrote. You can view it in that way, or you can view it with all of his behavior, all of his abhorrent, disgusting, vile, violent, vicious behavior in full exposure. And still say he was a man after God's heart. And in doing so, with humility and reverence, we bring our own story into the conversation. And we allow ourselves to see all that we have done to ourselves and to others that has been inherently destructive. Of course, not necessarily in the same way of David. 
but in other ways that have hurt people that have held them down, where we've used power and control and manipulation to get our way over theirs, where we've brought destruction and death emotionally, spiritually. And we don't allow the rest of our lives and the finality of our story to be defined by such actions. Is this possible? And if it is, how is it possible? And how is it that I could sit with a man who's doing a two-time life sentence in prison and hear his story and listen to his words and not be sat with a man that I feel in his essence is defined by what he's done? Is his circumstance defined by what he's done? Yes. Is his freedom to access the rest of society defined by what he's done? Yes. He will be in prison for the rest of his life. Is he deserving of that? Yes. Is that just? Yes. But is he in his soul, in his heart of hearts, is he defined as a murderer and a murderer only? Or could it be that there is a different, deeper, and more redemptive definition to this man's essence than his actions? I say yes. And the only reason I have the willingness to say yes for him is because I pray that the same could be said about me. I've done nothing that will lead me to spending any time in prison. Thank God. Praise the Lord. But I've done things that have brought destruction and pain to others and to myself. And do I want to be defined by such things? No. Sometimes it's so difficult to connect with a story like this in any way that's applicable for ourselves because it is so drastically and dramatically horrible and yet there is a line in the story that just challenges and convicts me in a very specific way and it's the opening line of that chapter in the spring when kings go out to war David stayed at home that's the context to everything else happening and sometimes in my mind that's a helpful way to look at things if I want to, in humility, reflectively receive some wisdom from it. Why did he do it? How did it get there? And how could I protect myself from falling into the same snare? Maybe in completely different ways with a completely different context, but behavior that brings destruction and remorse. David had a purpose as a king. And as much as I don't agree with the idea of barbaric military conquest, in the ancient world, David's purpose was to go out at spring, as the other kings did, and fight battles. And yet he chose not to. And in his choosing not to go to war, he created the space to fall into a very different kind of battle. And I want to suggest that it is in pursuing or not pursuing the purpose that is present to us each and every day. That in our decisions to follow or not follow, the purpose that is present to us each and every day is so defining of the type of battle we fight and the situations that we find ourselves in. Situations that often leave us feeling like a failure, a fraud, and a fool. It's so easy to believe that you don't have a purpose. 
that you are just drifting through life. Like that it doesn't truly matter what you do or what you don't do. And that life is so utterly random and meaningless that you might as well just live in chaos. This story speaks to me of purpose because I believe we all have one. I believe that if you're breathing, you have a purpose. And when I say purpose, I'm not really talking about the kind of, I don't know, self-help, let's be the best we can be and 10x everything to the highest degree, squeeze every bit of pulp out of every single second kind of purpose. If you relate to that and you love that, all good. I'm not really speaking about that. I guess with purpose, I'm talking about the person that we want to become. That there's a purpose running through every fiber of every day because there's an invitation to become someone every day, to become someone ultimately that I'm really excited to meet in 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years time. That's my purpose, is to become someone. And I have a vision of who this man is, as I'm sure you do of yourself. And this, this man has a decision to make each and every day like David had that day whether I go to war or not, so to speak. And so there's this passage in the New Testament that I want to draw your attention to, and I'm going to connect them two together. Don't worry, this isn't completely random. But there's a a conversation that Jesus has with one of his followers that really speaks of this situation of purpose and endeavor and endurance and the invitation to receive it or not. And it goes like this. It's in the book of Matthew It says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And ultimately he would be killed. And on the third day, he'd be raised again. And Peter, remember Peter is, he's like front line. Jesus had 12 guys that were following him around, but Peter was part of the, the three that were even closer to him. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter started to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Oof. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's a phrase that I have used more times than I can count. Never to someone else, but internally on my own. And for such a long time, I didn't even fully know why I was saying it. I partly was saying it because it just felt cool to say it. But I would say it at really consistent times. I would say it when I felt particularly troubled in my thoughts, often when I was going to sleep or when I was waking up, thoughts of anxiety, you know, thoughts of jealousy, thoughts of lust, thoughts that were clouding my mind and taking my peace. This phrase would just spill out of me, get behind me, Satan. And I decided to do some exploration of like where that phrase came from and what exactly it means, you know, because again, It's a phrase that you can kind of build a bit of a caricature around and in doing so become sort of familiar with it in the wrong way that actually loses its power and its poignancy. So I went back to it 
and I'm looking at the story where Jesus is taken aside by one of his followers and rebuked. Peter rebukes Jesus and says, this will never happen. You won't die. Not on my watch. Not on my arm with you. And Peter meant it. It wasn't long later that Peter was throwing a sword around in the air, trying to cut off a Roman's head as he was arresting Jesus. And yeah, he didn't try and cut off his ear. That guy was going for his head. It just happened to catch his ear. So this happens, and then Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. He looks at Peter, but he says, get behind me, Satan. So now some of you are thinking, oh man, now we're talking about Satan. There's one thing talking about the Old Testament, we're not talking about Satan. We have made a caricature of Satan, right? If you're thinking red skin and horns, this is, this is an image that we have made that Jesus was not conjuring up whatsoever, you got to remember, Jesus isn't speaking with 21st century pop culture, language, metaphor, and imagery. Jesus is speaking as a Jew. So when he evokes the word Satan, which in Greek is a word like uh, satanes, and it's a word that simply means adversary. In the Jewish consciousness, there isn't a devil like we have created a devil. Are there, are there mentions of Satan and this devil creature character absolutely there's two specifically in the old testament in briefly in the book of zechariah and more famously in the book of job but all these different mentions of the devil and satan in jewish understanding are not linear with this one idea of a character like we have in ours this the invoking of the word satan in in jewish consciousness is invoking of the the feeling of a of an enemy, of an adversary, of one who is ultimately and specifically against you. And, and so it's it's used more metaphorically over the, the length and breadth of the Old Testament writing because it's used in so many different ways. It's not one linear sort of understanding, everything from a test from God to a, a sinful desire to a spirit to, uh, yeah, the character that we see in the book of Job, but even the character that we see in the book of Job, it, it isn't like God and the devil against one another. For the Jewish consciousness, it was it was inconceivable that God would have a an alternative, that God in his ultimate power could only ever actually use the devil in his jurisdiction. So Job comes to God to ask him if he can have permission to attack Job, to ultimately bring Job to his knees that he would curse God and leave him. And so God allows and gives permission. Job is, the language is theodicy. The writing is theodicy. It's it's a book. It's the oldest book actually in, in the Bible. It's an ancient book that's wrestling with trying to make sense of suffering, how God can exist at the same time as suffering and pain. And that's a whole different series. And hey, maybe it's a series that we'll do at some point. My point here is when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he's not looking at Peter as if Peter's just grown horns. He's looking at Peter as voicing the language, the words, the verbiage, the notion, the essence of someone who's against his purpose and his mission and his intentional pursuit at that time. And he even says it, he says it specifically to him. He says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's what makes you an adversary to me right now, Peter. So someone so close to Jesus sounds like Satan to him. 
because he's speaking against the purpose that Jesus is stepping into in that moment. Jesus has announced his purpose. He says, my purpose is to die. Why? Because I'm going to defeat death, baby. I'm going to go the whole way. I'm going to rob death of its power, of its grave, and of its sting. And you, Peter, you're not going to get in my way. For Peter, Jesus' death was the worst case scenario because the whole movement ends. Peter has no one to follow after that. Peter has no part to play in this incredible redemption story that he's seeing unfolding if Jesus dies. So he gets in the way with his short-term thinking. He gets in the way. And we do this all the time. We get in the way of ourselves all of the time. We have these invitations into building ourselves, building our life into this glorious work of art that speaks of something bigger than even of ourselves, that that heals generational patterns and curses, that releases everyone that comes into context with us into more of themselves. We have this invitation to become someone that we dream of being, and yet we seem to so often fall at the first obstacle. There's a book, you, you may have heard of it if you haven't read it, called Atomic Habits, written by James Clear, and he, he has this line that I love. He says, every action you take is a vote for the type of person you want to become. And no single instance will transform your beliefs, but as the votes build up, so does the evidence of your new identity. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Jesus saying, Peter, I know who I'm going to become. I know who I am. And I'm filling my life with the evidence of that becoming. So that you can't even argue that I would be going in the other direction. Which is the very opposite of what David did in that story. In the spring, when kings go out to war, King David stayed at home. So right at the beginning of the story, we see someone forsaking their purpose and their passion. And giving themselves to the vacancy and the void, which led to this idle state. And idleness is a state... In many sense, it's a state of indifference. And in that place of indifference, you're incredibly vulnerable. See, we think that the worst thing that can happen to us is resistance. I think the worst thing that can happen to us is indifference. When you face resistance, it actually brings something out of you that hastens, that quickens your becoming process. If you're lifting a weight, that resistance tears muscle, which is painful but it actually results in stronger muscle being formed to not face resistance is to slowly become weaker and as a result more susceptible and more likely to fall into the traps that lead us into these positions that so often define us in a feeling of failure and a feeling of shamefulness a feeling of not being the person that we truly are of not becoming who we know we're born and destined to be. Now, as much as I don't like the caricature of the devil, I understand it. The, the uh, father of modern psychology, Carl Jung, said, until we personify something, it has no power. So until we personify it, it doesn't have power. If, if we don't believe that there is any force out there that is against us. If we don't give it a personification, then we won't believe that it has power. And if we don't believe that it has power, then we won't be prepared for it when it attacks. Does that make sense? 
I can't hear you respond, so I don't know why I said that. Um, I just, uh, if you ever hear me in a, in a workshop or in a seminar or in a conversation, I say that a lot because I want to make sure we're tracking together. Um, but on a podcast, it doesn't really have the same impact. Um, anyway, <laughs> when we give this idea of the devil personification, we acknowledge power. We acknowledge resistance. And in doing so, we set ourselves up for the right kind of war. We set ourselves up for the right kind of resistance. When Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, he was naming the voice that was coming against him. And in doing that, he was equipping himself to respond. If you don't do that, if you don't reveal your conviction, you often just end up falling at the mercy of the circumstance that you're in. I find for, for, for myself, talking about the spiritual world is so much easier with metaphors of the physical world. So I often make it about physical health. Working out every morning is something I very rarely want to do. But it is an expression of who I want to become. I, I want to be healthy. I want to live to an old man. I want to see my great grandkids. And I know that having a healthy body is a part of that. Sure. Random stuff can happen that make your life end a lot earlier than you want it to. But keeping physically healthy is something that counts towards living longer. I, I very rarely want to do it though. I very rarely want to get up when it's still dark and wet and cold and go out and do it. But it's the evidence of who I want to become. Now, what I find actually gives me the more kind of strength and conviction and courage to do it is to acknowledge the resistance that stands against me and simply to name it. All right, I feel you. I feel the lethargy. I feel the apathy. I feel the frustration at the thought of having to set my alarm at 5 a.m. I feel it. Get behind me, Satan. You know, get behind me, Satan. Because I know who I want to become. Get behind me, Satan. And I hear the voice, even from myself, that is in opposition to who I'm becoming. Get behind me, Satan. Yeah, I know it's the springtime, but why don't you just stay at home? Get behind me, Satan. Yeah, I know it's your dream to finish writing that book. But hey, the book's still going to be there next year. Just give yourself to another series on Netflix. Get behind me, Satan. I know what I'm here to do. I know that there's other options that I could choose, but I have a purpose in mind. I have a vision in mind, and I'm not going to allow the invitation into comfort to lead me somewhere that only delivers a deeper sense of dissatisfaction in my life. Get behind me, Satan. Is it going to be hard? Yes. Jesus went to the cross, it says, for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? The cross was horrific. The cross was torturous. The cross was violent. The cross, cross was the epitome, the climax of human physical suffering. But it says it was for the joy. Another way that the scriptures put it in Romans is suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character, character produces hope. What am I getting at here? Suffering produces joy and suffering produces hope and suffering produces love. Have you ever loved without suffering? No, I don't think you have at all. 
When I became a dad, I began suffering. Why did I begin suffering? Because as soon as I brought, well, as soon as my wife brought this beautiful little baby girl into the world, I was faced with such wonder and joy and adoration and respect and glee and all these other beautiful positive words towards this one little thing that I had to then recognize there's the possibility that this little beautiful thing could be hurt while she's here and immediately in loving her I suffer and to taste true sober joy isn't to avoid your circumstance and what you've been through it's to face it head on it's to step into the fire of your experiences and your trauma and your pain and only in doing that are you able to fully announce to the world it's good to be here it's still good to be here and that's that's joy personified resistance gives us the opportunity to actually become who we've always dreamt of being indifference apathy and idleness only leads us further down the route of becoming who we didn't ever want to be. And as you know, if you listen to my podcast for a while, I define discipline as an act that costs you who you don't want to be. So every time I do something, it costs me who I don't want to be. Every time I do something that, yeah, might, might not be the, the easiest option, it costs me who I don't want to be. And uh, that for me is... It's an exciting way to live. One more quote from James Clear because I made a few notes from his book that I think is so relate to this, this final episode. He said, when nothing seems to help, I go and look at a stone cutter hammering away at his rock, perhaps a hundred times without as much as a crack showing in it. Yet at the hundred and first blow, it splits into two. And I know it was not that last blow that did it, but all that had gone before. Paul says in Galatians, my prayer, my hope, my desire is that Christ would be formed within you. Jesus talks about making his home within us. There is this formational aspect to becoming someone that we truly want to be, someone that hosts divine presence, someone that represents the image of God in such a beautiful and pure and, and undeniable way. Like when Jesus says, I will make my home in you, that always speaks to me about, it takes some time to make a home, you know? Like you don't walk into an empty apartment and just think this is home. It becomes a home when it's filled with your belongings and filled with your intentional decisions around the interior and around the functionality. And when I think about God's dwelling within us, there is this becoming, this forming, this homemaking process and so making home within yourself and making space within yourself is about these decisions that you pursue. So often feeling like a failure, so often looking at our lives retrospectively, I think we can see when we chose not to pursue very simple and basic expressions of purpose that ultimately led us to places that we don't want to go. Right at the beginning of the book, of Matthew, the writer decides to start a story with a genealogy to talk about where Jesus came from. And in verse 6, it says this Jesse was the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon's mother 
was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. What I find so powerful about that line is that Uriah is named alongside King David. It is an ode to the fallen. Not only is there something so unconceivably redemptive about King David in all of his atrocity and wrongdoing being named as a great-great-grandfather of Jesus, but Uriah, the poor man whose lamb was taken from him, is also named, as is Bathsheba, to evoke what I feel is a validation of the victim, of God saying, I see you. I see you. And your story matters and your name matters. We find this, this breadcrumb of hope in, in, in the genealogy in this long list of all those people that went before Jesus, we find this diverse and eclectic and vulnerable and fragile and foolish and failing list of humans. Not only people that were faithful and people that were hopeful, but, but murderers and rebels and transgressors and adulterers. We see the fearful listed with the courageous. We see the faithful listed with the infidel. And we see a purpose, an outworking that somehow isn't corrupted or thwarted. We see in the coming of Jesus, the whole human story being slowly and eventually redeemed. That genealogy speaks to me about a God who works with us as we are speaks to me about a carpenter who's prepared to use broken bits of wood to make something beautiful. And hey, as this message is before Christmas, in the words of Kathleen Norris, I see in that genealogy, in a world as cold and cruel and unjust as it is, just like it was at the birth of Jesus, I see the desire of something new and something sacred and something holy being born. And in that birth, I see an awakening in our hearts that it's possible for our greatest faults and failings and foolishness not to be the final word in our story. I see hope coming on the horizon. And I see an invitation to believe that it's possible to see myself as God sees me, as a very imperfect person who is nevertheless completely and utterly loved without condition and reservation. And to that I say amen. Over you, my friend, to that I say amen. You are imperfect, yes, but you are completely loved. And not just theoretically and theologically, you are being loved right now. And so I want to end with a blessing that I've read before by Jen Richardson. 
and this is a blessing for the beloved. It's a blessing to remind you of the truest thing about you. A voice from heaven said, This is my child, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. If you would enter into the wilderness, do not begin without a blessing. Do not leave without hearing who you are. Beloved, named by the one who has traveled this path before you, do not go without letting it echo in your ears. And if you find it is hard to let it into your heart, do not despair. That is what this journey is for. I cannot promise this blessing will free you from danger, from fear, from hunger or thirst, from the scorching of sun or the fall of the night, but I can tell you that on this path, there will be help. I can tell you that on this way, there will be rest. I can tell you that you will know the strange graces that come to our aid only on a road such as this, that fly to meet us bearing comfort and strength that come alongside us for no other cause than to lean themselves toward our ear and with their curious insistence whisper our name. Beloved. Beloved. Beloved.